0: Hello and welcome to episode twenty-eight of Splash of Cinema. So, picking up off our last episode, you know, delving into some of the Oscar nominees. It's after the Oscars. We all watched it. We all have some ideas. And who better to bring on the pod than the man, Sam Rosevear himself, stanced up (laughs) CEO. We're happy to have him today. How are you doing today, Sam?
1: Hey, I'm doing good. It is it is great to be back talking movies with you too. It's been a while been a while since we've gotten the chance to chat and yeah i'm excited to dig into this slate uh very interesting group of movies i thought it was a good oscars but an interesting oscars for sure so yeah i'm looking forward to to getting my thoughts on wax
2: well it was definitely no one got slapped this year so i think for them (laughs) better or worse i don't know it's probably better but yeah we haven't had you on since last july so
0: holy cow it's
2: crazy how fast time goes but yeah, we're, we're let's let's get into it. We have a good lineup. So, Pete, you want to start us off?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, we're just going to be covering some movies today that we haven't covered, big Oscar nominees and some hidden ones as well. And we're going to start it off with our hidden gem of the week, which is 2022's EO. And the story is essentially about this donkey that you followed the donkey through its POV and a bunch of events go on around it, a lifetime of events. It was directed by Jerzy Skolomowski and it's out of Poland and it was up for best international feature. It did not win uh, as All Quiet on the Western Front won that category pretty easily and most of the technical categories, to be fair. So, yeah, this is EO. Uh Sam, what are your thoughts? I'll hop right into it as you're the guest this evening.
1: Hey, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, EO. Uh, this is a fresh wash for me, honestly. Um, I just just watched this earlier today. so I gotta give myself some time to process for sure. but overall, I thought it was a uh, a great movie. it's a, it's a fitting uh, hidden gem of the week for you all. It's actually streaming right now on the uh, Criterion channel if if you subscribe Ooh. to that, uh, which which you know is a treat and it's part of their like Isabel Hooper collection. Um, who I I had no idea that she was in this Um, and she's in it like kind of briefly, but she's always like just a magnetic performer. Um, So that was a treat to see her on the screen again. And yeah, I just, I really thought this was kind of a multifaceted movie, which is sounds like a kind of dumb thing to say, but it served a bunch of purposes for me on a, on a great Sunday morning. Right. Like it, it was a very relaxing watch Uh, very thought provoking, kind of like, it feels borderline documentarian, but there's these great experimental passages that bring to mind everyone from like Terrence Malick to Gaspar Noy. Like, I I just, I just thought it was so, such an interesting approach to this movie. And, And frankly, I've been hearing great things about this movie, but I had been really reluctant to actually sit down and watch it because it, it really is just about the life of a donkey, right? So so how interesting does that actually sound? I don't know. For me, it didn't sound that interesting. But the way the filmmakers are able to make you empathize with this donkey is just incredible. And it, it sounds kind of funny to think about, um, but you really do feel like you're in the donkey's shoes. And, and then you think about, all the people around them and boy have I ever been you know like like some of these people in this movie to an animal right like uh, that's that's kind of the biggest question I think this movie's asking and but but yeah I mean just really fluid movie um I thought a really powerful ending that kind of punched me in the face a little bit just the movie really breathes it's it's really well made and I just loved all of the experimental things they were doing the changes in tone the the visuals that they were able to pull off. So yeah, I think I gave this four stars out of five, but you know, teetering closer to a five than a four for me. So yeah, good movie. I'll pass it off.
2: Yeah, I got you. While you're talking about the visual thing, that, that was probably my favorite part of the movie. I loved how they use lights. It kind of, there was a strobe feel to it, especially in the beginning of the movie to kind of emphasize, I think, the confusion that the donkey frequently went through throughout the film as it changed Like venues and settings, and it interacted with different types of humans. One scene that stood out to me in particular was the scene in the forest with all the lasers pointing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was a great scene. It was like
2: hunting, I think it was supposed to indicate, because there was like a dead wolf and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of, those sequences touched a little bit on the metaphysical, which I think you guys talked about. This film is very like deep, which of course we love deep cinema here, but. It's such a simple premise like it's it's a donkey's life, but the donkey lives an extraordinary life all the way up until the final sequence, which was super powerful, kind of out of nowhere. I really liked that in this short runtime, we got to see like this donkey live multiple lives and each one of the different little lives it lived taught us something about humanity in a way. And that was probably my favorite part, just the whole movie. But it flowed super smooth. And I, and I really thought that it felt almost shorter than it was. And I think it was an 88 minute film is what Letterboxd says, which is pretty ridiculously short, especially for one that gets an Oscar nominee.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to echo everything the two of you have said. I had the pleasure of seeing this in in a theater, actually. Uh, there's this great theater downtown Ithaca called Cinemopolis. And they always have you know these festivals for the Oscars and stuff. And always play Oscar nominated stuff that, you know, isn't as as known. Like they had Of an Age, which I think was nominated and close as well, uh, international features. So I had the pleasure of going there and being in a theater for this was amazing. I did not know what I was getting into at all. Uh I did not think I would empathize with a literal ass. But by the end of it, uh that that is what they got out of me. There's a lot of poise in this movie as well, in the construction. As you said, John, I at no point felt bored at all during this and you're just simply following a donkey right uh but i i like the the tertiary plot points that they put in and some of them as gruesome as they are are were entertaining in the end and sort of got a chuckle out of what at its end is a pretty somber movie i would say but really enjoyed this one beautiful score as well i've been listening to like that opening s- song on the score just in my free time because I, th- I think it's really satisfying it's really cool and uh, cool to see some cinema from Poland. I think this is one of the first ones I've seen from Poland. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I'll echo what you said about the the score, Peter, and, and specifically that opening song. The the opening scene in general is so beautiful and disorienting. And you think it, one thing is happening, and then it you realize something else entirely is happening. And, and uh, I just thought it was a great piece of filmmaking. And I want to call out, I think the, the filmmaker of this movie is is really old i want to say he's like late 80s something like that and you you feel that perspective right you feel you feel like this movie's made by someone who's lived a lot of life right because the the donkey lives a ton of life in this movie it's it's scary it's funny it's dangerous it's you know kind of whimsical at points um and and it ends up being really kind of somber, like you said at the end. But, you know, I haven't seen any of uh, Skolomowski's other films, but this encourages me to watch more of them because, boy, he's got a really sure hand and and, um, it's just really confident, not overly flashy, but really, really skillful filmmaking. So, yeah, call that out there.
2: I appreciate how the film's like sort of uplifting in a way, especially at various points, but I mean, overall, it kind of felt like a downer, but it definitely takes you through like an emotional roller coaster, but it's way more subtle than that. The whole thing is just kind of calming, even though the donkey goes through like trials and tribulations. I think the vibe of the movie is very centered, if that makes sense. It just flows so smoothly and it's it's almost like staring at a painting or like an artwork. It's definitely like a slice of life movie with some excitement to it. And I think that that's pretty rare. I don't think Like an American movie would turn out like this?
0: No, no way.
2: Yeah, there's definitely some like something going on in the Polish water or something. (laughs) It almost felt like an A24 movie, but even weirder, and maybe a little bit better than the average A24 movie. But they're probably kicking themselves that they
0: didn't like sponsor it or fund it. Pick it up, yeah. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Any anything anyone else has to say about EO? I'm good. All right. So that was 2022's EO again, available on the Criterion channel. Thank you for bringing that to our attention, Sam. I need to get a Criterion. Do you have a membership, Sam? Quick sidebar, but.
1: I, I do. Um, well, frankly, Jackson and I kind of share one or you could say that I kind of commandeer it from him. Um, <laughs> but I, I yeah, he's he's probably gonna make me get my own at some point soon, but it, I really would recommend it, right? If, if Jackson and I didn't share one, I would search it out and get one myself they they do their best to kind of canonize great films and, you know, which which there's a bad side of that too, right? There's been a lot of discourse recently about, you know, our criterion simply just trying to own as many of the best movies of all time as they can. Is that a monopoly, right? Which I don't want to open that can of worms, but as a place to start, like discovering new movies and not knowing what you want to watch and just opening up the app and figuring it out, it's it's a great app. And their library is just gigantic. So yeah, I'd recommend it. Yeah. Do you know how much that is, Sam? It's probably I think it's like ninety or a hundred bucks a year, something like that.
2: That's not too bad. Sam, also to our audience out there, if you don't know, Sam is like an AMC Premier member, right? <laughs> Are you, Sam? Yeah, I'm an
1: A-list AMC A-list member. It's a good deal if you live near like me. I live in Minneapolis. Uh, we've got like ten AMC's right around us, so. I get to see three movies a week uh, for free, basically, after I pay my whatever it is now, like 25, 27 bucks a month. But you know what? Hey, if I go to one movie and if I get a popcorn or something, that's $30 nowadays, which is just ridiculous. So I might as well make my money back. I go to a lot of movies. So um, if you're like me and you go to a lot of AMC theaters, I would recommend that as well. It's definitely a bang for your buck. The dream would definitely be to be
2: have like a home theater. Oh, yes. Or like own an AMC or something. That'd be sick.
1: Absolutely.
2: Anyway, we're going off on a tangent. Oh, I'll lead us into the next movie. <laughs> so the next movie is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Um, it's available on Netflix and it is directed by Guillermo del Toro, who is, of course, a famous director and Mark Gustafson. Uh, The plot reads, love will give you life. During the rise of fascism in Mussolini's Italy, a wooden boy brought magically to life struggles to live up to his father's expectations. And it stars Gregory Mann, Ewan McGregor, David Bradley, Tilda Swinton, Kate Blanchett, a bunch of great voice actors. Oh, it's written, of course, by Del Toro and Matthew Robbins. Yeah, just a really cool take on Pinocchio, which has been It felt like it's almost been overdone lately with like two or three versions coming out a year. It feels like I think Robert Zemeckis did a version. There was another like live action one.
0: Did you did you see the animated trailer of did you see that movie that came out? I think it was this year or last year. It was Pinocchio, but there was a lot of discourse just about the voice of Pinocchio because it sounded (laughs) it sounded like it was like Pauly Shore. I think Pauly Shore did voice Pinocchio. Really? Yeah. No, I did not see that. Yeah, yeah. I'll find it. I'll find it. But keep, keep going, John. Sorry.
2: <laughs> no, it's all good. Anyway, the point is, there's been a lot of Pinocchio done so lately. So I was a little like wary of watching this, but I shouldn't have been. I mean, it's Guillermo del Toro. He's a master filmmaker, and it comes through here. Um, in what my opinion was the best animated film of the year. It was really cool. Like They did it with carved wooden figurines. And the plot spin on it of it being set in the fascist Italy made for a lot of interesting moments for Pinocchio and his father in quotation marks. And yeah, I thought there was a lot of heart in the movie. Of course, the master filmmaking, like the craft was immaculate. The voice acting is rife with people like Kate Blanchett, like Tim Blake Nelson, like people that know what they're doing. It was handled with an expert level of care. And it put a fresh spin on timeless story and I really liked it. What about you boys?
0: Yeah, uh, I I really love this one. Uh, Like yourself, this was my favorite out of the category and I'm really glad it won. I'm just a huge fan of stop motion. I I've seen some behind the scenes stuff with this and that they were operating on such a small scale with the stop motion that like they would, they would like alter the action of the characters with like little tweezers that you would find in like a chef using, which is crazy. So that just shows the detail that this movie had. And I mean, I'm sure the post-production for this was so long. uh, But when you have people like Netflix behind it, you can take as much time as you want. And I'm really glad they picked this up because I, for one, am finding that these Netflix originals are only getting worse. And this was definitely a breath of fresh air. Good spin on Pinocchio. I wasn't too informed of, you know, the IP of Pinocchio that much. Uh, Obviously, I knew about Pinocchio, but not to that degree. So it was cool to get that story with a little twist on it. I love the satire of uh, fascist Italy. I thought it was handled really well. And yeah, I just really, really enjoyed this one. Uh, Ewan McGregor as Jiminy Cricket as well. Perfect. So really liked it.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll just go right ahead and say I would highly recommend this movie. Um, It's not just for kids. There's a lot for everybody in this movie. Um, I think you guys have hit the nail on the head with the voice performances. My personal favorite was... David Bradley, who voices Geppetto, um, Uh just has an awesome voice and was a great opportunity for an actor who's known for playing people like Mr. Filch in Harry Potter. And I forget that guy's name from Game of Thrones that he plays, but it's a bad guy. It's a guy who plays a lot of like villains and just like despicable characters. It's a chance for him to play like just a really good hearted person. So I'm, I'm really happy for him that he got the chance to do this. Again, the craft, the songs, I thought uh, the soundtrack was beautiful just the craft work is amazing i'm and and i'm i'm typically like lukewarm on del Toro's movies i you know i like the shape of water i don't love the shape of water i, I like i don't love nightmare alley but this I, I i kind of adored it's you know really really fun really heartfelt and i you know i think the setting is interesting i'm i'm still wrapping my head around why he chose to Place this in you know fascist Italy Um, it's just kind of funny because you look at the cast list and it's like Tom Kenny the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants voices Mussolini in this movie which is just something (laughs) I never thought I would encounter in my life right Um, but I mean it once the story kind of kicks into gear the setting makes a lot of sense I think but it is just kind of like you take a step back and you're like wait why is Pinocchio like performing for Mussolini right now it's just kind of kind of a funny idea but in the context of the movie it it uh it makes a lot of sense so yeah two thumbs up here um very interesting movie I personally
2: loved Kate Blanchett as Spotsatora the monkey that was probably my favorite yeah, part she's great she was just like unhinged in this and we'll get I'm sure we'll get into some Kate Blanchett love later um when oh, we yeah. talk about tar but
0: robbery robbery but yeah don't get me
1: started fellas <laughs> boys let's let's stay calm for now
2: (laughs) but i was really happy to to see this um and that it won because i thought that this was actually a pretty good year for animated movies we already talked about puss in boots i don't think we need to talk about marcel the shell but that was a very interesting experimental animated film that was up against this in the category and i mean those movies are all great but if you broke them down this one definitely probably had the most time go into it I mean, the animation alone was like super incredible. And it it almost felt like a little bit revolutionary. I just I also like Pete really appreciate stop motion because it's clear like there's a lot of care that goes into it. But that same amount of care was dedicated to the story as well. And so you just had this full movie. The soundtrack, too, was phenomenal with all those little songs. They were cute. They were funny, but they were also like there was something deeper to the songs that definitely added to the soundtrack a lot. Mm. And yeah, top to bottom, some of the decisions were a little weird. It was definitely, there was some satire going on, but you know, there's a method to the madness as they say. And Del Toro hasn't proved me wrong. I love his previous films. Not really The Shape of Water, but Pan's Labyrinth and Nightmare Alley. I just loved.
1: I think uh, the funniest kind of five or six minutes of the movie for me is, is when Geppetto and Jimmy Cricket they go out to sea to to search and find Pinocchio again. And uh, the first part that's funny is they encounter a sailor and they're like, please take us across the ocean. And he goes, this isn't an ocean. It's a graveyard. And I just thought that was a really funny live line reading. (laughs) Um, And then like five minutes later, um, Geppetto's like, they're like sitting on this boat and Geppetto's like, uh, Jiminy Cricket, do you think we will ever find Pinocchio and Jiminy, you know, like many musicals do, he just kind of randomly bursts into song and he gets like two verses into this song and then a whale just swallows him. Like spoiler alert for Pinocchio, if you have no idea what happens in Pinocchio, but they do end up in a whale's mouth like they do in all versions of this. So uh, I just thought that was really funny, like playing with the, the musical form a little bit. So sneaky, funny movie. I'll throw that out there.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely some comedic moments. Uh, I loved Christoph Waltz as Count Volp. Uh, I thought he did a great job. And I also like how it didn't just focus on Pinocchio. I mean, it's called Pinocchio, right? You would think it would solely focus on Pinocchio. uh, But I do like the time they gave to Geppetto, Jiminy Cricket, uh, as well as Pinocchio's friend, who he befriends in about halfway through the movie, I would say, and his father, I like that relationship and del Toro's focus on that as well within the scope of the whole movie. Uh, So I thought that was really effective and made it a better all around movie for me uh, with those side side plots. So, yeah.
2: And, you know, we got to we got to talk. Christoph Waltz is great, but we also have to talk a little bit about Ewan McGregor's narration. Anytime someone gives him the reins to like be the background narrator, I just get like big fish vibes. Uh huh that's a great tone to set for the movie. I mean, as soon as a movie starts and you just hear you you and McGregor's soothing, like Obi-Wan Kenobi brings back memories voice, everything kind of falls into place. So that was a really
0: good choice. So that was uh, 2022's Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's 2022 Pinocchio. Again, available on Netflix. Seriously, give this one a watch. It's a movie for all ages. Uh, a lot of different emotions felt during this and a rewarding watch in the end uh so moving on we're going to cover 2022's triangle of sadness it's directed by ruben usland it's out of denmark i believe right denmark sounds right I'm checking. It's somewhere in scandinavia swedish swedish <laughs> swedish okay Ruben Östlund. <laughs> Östlund. Uh, so he's out of... He has the umlaut over his the O in his name. So he is Swedish. Sorry about that. Uh, the plot reads, models Carl and Yaya are invited for a luxury cruise with a rogues gallery of super rich passengers. At first, all appears Instagrammable. But the cruise ends ca- catastrophically and the group find themselves marooned on a desert island. It stars Harris Dickinson, Woody Harrelson, and charlie Dean, I believe this movie is available on Apple Plus, but I will check that in the meantime. It's on Hulu too. It's on Hulu. Okay, yeah. it's on Hulu. Uh, great. So, Triangle of Sadness. Give it a watch on Hulu. This sort of follows, you know, the whole theme that we've been seeing with White Lotus, even Succession to a degree. Just having satire on this super rich and sort of how social media has to do with that. And this is Ruben Ustlin's take on that, I think. Uh, I thought it was a little long, uh, but in the end, I did enjoy it. I don't think it deserved to be in the Best Picture category. I will say that up front. Uh, so this got nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. Uh, I did think the screenplay was good and the direction you know, was fine, but uh, I just think the runtime sort of made it a little worse for me and just really dragged out scenes that happened but i thought it was enjoyable it was fine for what it was but i'm sort of sick of this genre to be frank so there's that to it too but what are your guys thoughts
1: yeah i thought a uh, interesting movie i'd say which again that's that's just great criticism by me but um i'll I'll hope to unpack that a little bit more <laughs> i agree with you peter i think it's a little too long i mean 147 minutes I have no problem with movies being long. I mean, killers of the flower moon is going to be four hours. Like give it to me right now. I want all of that movie. No way. But It's going to be four hours. That's, that's what they're saying, but we'll see. But you know, 147 minutes, that's, that's not intolerable, but how do you actually fill that space? Right? Like, like there was just a lot of this that felt um, repetitive to me. As soon as it kind of makes its points, that's kind of all there is. And the movie just kind of, it kind of, fell flat for for me once we once it got to a certain point but i mean you can't argue that it's not well made there's definitely skill in the filmmaking especially during you know a few of the yacht sequences when the boat's going through some heavy waters the camera kind of tilting uh the people start to get motion sick you start to feel sick along with them just just through the camera movements i've never really seen that kind of camera movement before which i thought was pretty cool think the performances are rock solid um definitely harris dickinson i think he's gonna gonna have a big career he was also in uh uh, where the crawdad sing last year playing like a completely different character giving a way worse performance um so i i wasn't sold on him when i saw that but after seeing this i mean i hope people keep putting him in interesting roles because he's got potential and um Charbley Dean, I thought she was excellent. Um, Unfortunately, she passed away last year, but just a great young actor that I think proved herself. And and yeah, so sad that we don't get more performances from her. And then I think the standout is Dolly De Leon, Um, especially once we get into the back half of the movie, she really just steals the movie so there's a lot of craft there's a lot of stuff to appreciate about this movie for me i think the whole thing is kind of a a, an eat the rich metaphor and you know once the joke is told um it just kind of repeats itself for a little too long and i i think it's uh i think this movie is like making good points but they're not necessarily very deep points and that's not to say that that's all movies have to be is deep but based on the the skill and the Gravitas of the filmmaking, right? I, I'm kind of led to believe that he was searching for something more here. I do think the movie ends pretty strongly, though. I think the last the last scene is awesome. I just wish it came a lot earlier. So I'll pass it to John after that.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh I I think the Eat the Rich theme is starting to get a little overdone. I think this movie actually would have been a lot more powerful and maybe even better received if it had been released like two years ago, right before White Lotus. Because White Lotus kind of took over all the shock value that this would have gotten. And I think it, yeah, it's not super deep. Even though it's conveying some interesting, cool themes, it kind of hand feeds it to you, which at first is funny and like adds to the irony. But once they, once the kind of like nauseating ship sequence ends and you still have another like hour, hour and a half of the movie, it's a little bit like, okay, I get the point. Yeah. And it descends into madness, which completely kind of erases all of the appreciation that you would have had for the beginning shots like some some of this is just masterful the male model sequence <laughs> is really well done
0: <laughs> yeah I love that scene yeah the
2: boat scene is nausea. like I loved Woody Harrelson and it, it, it is a little bit in your face that th- they throw the themes in your face like you don't really there's not too much interpretation on how you're supposed to think but as soon as it gets to the island thing it's, it's almost like a complete 180 the movie is it's it's really a movie of two halves and one of the halves could have been a lot shorter and dolly de leon's great but a little bit it's like they're just kind of sitting around at that point
1: well yeah like they get to the they get stranded on the island right which that's in the trailer not a spoiler but of course these super one percent rich people uh are gonna have no idea how to make a fire or or do do this or do that like is that really the only joke that we can come up with here right like you know and it, yeah. it's just kind of an hour of that uh until it ends and i think it does end satisfyingly but boy imagine if that ending happened 30 minutes sooner right i don't want to belabor the point but i i do want to call out like and i know talking about his next movies and it just makes me nervous because he he gets in the press and he's like my next movie is about a kid trying to download candy crush on his ipad and you're like what is he trying to do? Like, this isn't really satire. This is just like, this is just <laughs> kind of dumb at this point. So I would recommend the movie. I mean, I, I gave it three stars. It's definitely worth seeing. But yeah, I think I think it just drags on and belabors the joke a little bit.
0: I did want to mention, I did enjoy the uh, scene with Woody Harrelson and uh, Zlatko Buric, where they're just talking and getting drunk. I thought that was great comedic relief uh, in the movie. John, I want to get your take on that because it was like very... You no, know, a political discussion. Like, did you enjoy that scene or did you think it was just overkill?
2: I'm pretty sure and I'm gonna go back to my review right now, but I'm pretty sure my review was like, I also want to debate the tenets of communism and capitalism with a drunken woody heroes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said I would do almost anything to have a drunken conversation with Woody Harrelson about the tenets of communism and capitalism for an hour. Maybe <laughs> if we blow up, he'll come on the podcast, question mark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's good. That
2: just like seems right up his alley. And I thought that that was totally like well within the means of what the movie was supposed to be communicating before it kind of got off the rails. You got your drunk cruise ship captain that really doesn't even do anything on his job. And he's talking with the rich Russian guy about... Like politics over the the microphone, and all these rich people, like they can't do anything about it. They keep trying to get into the door, and it's just chaotic, and it adds to the nauseating like vibe that we get during that whole sequence. I thought that 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 whole sequence was just masterful, and I was laugh out loud, just dying the whole time.
1: yeah, I, I agree that was really funny. I think the whole nauseating, turbulent yacht ride gross out sequence is is probably the the best part of the movie even again i I think that sequence goes on a little too long but i think it's really really fun and i don't i wasn't necessarily wishing that it was over and uh as that scene started starting when they're being fed all these nice meals it's a good like small little joke that they're making about like how the the super rich people eat is this stuff actually appetizing to you or are you just like saying it because you can afford it right so that once the ship starts rocking they start eating these like Caviar with green sea foam and stuff like that—it's just like the last possible thing you would ever want as you're getting <laughs> seasick, right? Yeah, <laughs> I just yeah, thought yeah. that was a small little little joke, right? Like if if the ship's not rocking, you're looking at that food thinking, "Wow, this is some crazy expensive you know meal that they're having." But once that ship's rocking, you're like, "Man, I would not want to touch that thing." So I thought that was kind of funny.
2: Yeah, there was a little bit of the uh, menu vibes in that, mm-hmm. totally mm-hmm. big time. Yeah. I just wanted a fat cheeseburger <laughs> well and it's
1: funny because I mean those were kind of the two eat the rich movies uh, satires that came out last year and you know when I was watching Tri- Triangle of Sadness and we mentioned Succession earlier I was thinking about Mark Mylod. and in some ways I think the menu was really good but I just don't think his directing is as good as when he directs Succession and I wondered what he could do with material like Triangle of Sadness I mean I think there's just there was more meat to pick off of this bone here. And I wonder like someone who directs like Mark Mylod, if he would, would have been able to kind of scratch those itches a little bit better, you know, just, just throwing that out there.
0: All right. So that was 2022's triangle of sadness. Uh, John, do you want to bring us to the next one?
2: Yeah. Speaking of uh, scratching that itch, a man that's done well at those things over the years as a, maybe the most accomplished filmmaker of our time, definitely one of them, Um, Steven Spielberg's 2022 film, The Fablemans, um, directed by him, of course, starring Gabriel LaBelle, Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, Judd Hirsch, and the list goes on and on. The plot reads, a coming-of-age story about a young man's discovery of a shattering family secret and an exploration of the power of movies to help us see the truth about each other and ourselves. And this was Spielberg's kind of owed to his own backstory in his childhood it it mirrors a lot of things that happened in his life um and that's no secret and kind of just opens up our worldview as to a young man's journey into cinema and the power of cinema to truly like amplify someone's life and guide them through those tough moments those happy moments and yeah this just this gave me a little bit of a deeper appreciation for Spielberg we already know he has range but He's famous for like sci-fi movies, and this was not one of those. This was more of a raw, intimate, heartfelt kind of journey through through a child, Buildings Roman. And yeah, it was masterfully done. It felt like an ode to cinema, and I really appreciated that as a a big cinephile. I think this is one of those movies that I wouldn't have appreciated as much a couple of years ago before I really got into movies. Well done to Spielberg for this. This was great.
0: You know, I went into this thinking it was going to be really bad, Just because all the press about it and, you know, Steven Spielberg autobiography, right? Like I was going in not thinking it would be the best because, you know, I'd like I like Saving Private Ryan. I like Schindler's List. I like Jaws. No, I don't like stuff that's much more grounded, I think. But I thought it was very well well grounded. I love the performances. Gabriel LaBelle was a standout. I think this was his first acting credit, like professional acting credit. Uh, which is pretty crazy. I thought he was really good in this. Uh, Paul Dano was fantastic. Stand out from Michelle Williams as well. Although I think it was a little too long because of Michelle Williams and her character. But we can talk about that a little later.
2: It is Michelle Williams, though, you know.
0: Yeah, I know it is, but I don't know. It just got old. It's got old, like all the crying and stuff. Uh, But that's just me. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I love the John Williams score as well. That's definitely a standout. It's always great to see them collaborate. And yeah, I don't know. It was a good. It, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I think I gave it four and a half stars, but it's it's more towards four for me. Definitely need to rewatch it. But uh, yeah, it just took. I think it just took its time too much. And obviously, you know, Spielberg has that liberty. Uh, but there wasn't enough sustenance in there for me to sort of cut at me or anything. So yeah.
1: Yeah, I think this uh, this is a great movie. It's one that I have not had the chance to rewatch since I saw it when it came out, but it kind of, it's still sticking with me. Um, And the more I think about it, the more I like it, the more I appreciate it. I think uh, on a rewatch, I'd like it even more than I did when I saw it. And I think that's, that's because I, I think it's really like a skeleton key to, to Spielberg's career. Right. And, and it gives you such great insights into so many parts of what makes him, him. Right. And not only his, you know, background, why maybe his movies feel the way they do. There's so many great like little Easter eggs on how he figured out how to put gunshots in his movie or how he pulled off a certain stunt, you know, that he would later recreate in a movie. But there's also just so many of Spielberg's movies are about divorce or have divorce in them tangentially. And boy, this just like opens that all up right like his 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 parents relationship was really complicated and his his mother was a very complicated woman and boy it's a really emotional movie especially like then you think about his other movies and which characters might have been his mother which characters might have been channeling his father and or or his sister or something like that and it you know i don't find it self-indulgent i i find the whole idea of this movie very Romantic, very therapeutic for him. And yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of heartbreaking at certain points, just his parents' relationship. I think th- this movie contains one of the best shots of the year, which is the family is having kind of a big fight. His parents and the other kids are having a, a big fight. And young Steven Spielberg, Gabriel Labelle, is kind of just sitting there watching it and and he looks and there's a mirror at the kind of behind the family. And he sees himself like holding a camera, filming the family's fight. Number one, that's just such a ballsy piece of filmmaking. Like who would even think to come up with an idea like that? So devastating and so personal. But it's it's also, you feel like he's, that's kind of what he's been doing for the rest of his career. He's been kind of Trojan horsing his, his family trauma into these huge movies. So that shot just, I think is amazing, you know, but it's not all like super serious stuff, right? There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of adventure in this movie. Um, Seth Rogen is in it. Like, of course it's going to be kind of fun when Seth Rogen's in the movie. And I think the ending of this movie is like so crowd pleasing and enjoyable. And, you know, David Lynch is like my favorite filmmaker of all time. (laughs) He has a, he has a small, but like amazing role in this movie. And, you know, that just meant the world to me to be able to see him on screen again. So, yeah, I I really love this movie. I think um, the more you read about it, like people like Michelle Williams' character, like if you ask people that grew up with Spielberg, they're like, oh, Michelle Williams was like kind of toning that down for the movie. Like his mom was like 10 times the amount of energy that she was playing, (laughs) you know, like the research and the correspondence you can do based off his family. Like I find all that so interesting now. So. Yeah, I, I just appreciated it as a uh, an artifact of his work. And yeah, like I said, a skeleton key to his career. So I I think I love this movie, but I'll pass it to John.
2: Yeah, I mean, therapeutic. It's like the definition of therapeutic. We've never really seen anything like this. I mean, here's this 76 year old man that's on top of his industry. And he's really had like the perfect filmmaking life. He's, he's directed so much of the beloved cinema and the American canon. And then he, at 76 years old, decides to make this intimate personal film about his own life and his love for cinema and how he discovered that. And it opens up all of his other movies. Like, now I can watch every other Spielberg movie and see something different after seeing The Fable Moon. And that's so cool. Like like you said, it's like a key to his, his other work. It makes things like Catch Me If You Can. Like, I never really thought about that before. But it's definitely inspired from his childhood a little bit. Maybe even a little bit of like saving private Ryan and stuff like that. Like family is a big part of his films, but he never really addressed why. And it that's a beautiful thing. I also loved Judd Hirsch. He didn't really get a shout out, but he did get, I think, a best supporting nom for this movie. And that was well deserved. His character provided a lot of comic relief. And Seth Rogan was great. It's it's nice to see actors switch it up. And he definitely switched it up really well here and Although he was funny, he definitely was also serious. And that's what made the serious moments more powerful, was that there was a lot of childhood fun throughout the movie. I mean, most of it isn't super emotional, like family, big, tense moments. But though when those moments occur, they're way more powerful because of the shots of him like derailing a toy train and making little cowboy shoot up movies with his friends. All the fun stuff makes the... Michelle Williams crying moments more powerful.
1: Yeah, John, I think you mentioned uh, this movie kind of unlocking his other movies, right? I I completely agree. Uh, Again, I'll bring up the divorce thing. I mean, I think E.T. is a straight up movie about divorce to a certain extent. The one that I think about all the time is AI, artificial intelligence, which it's not that subtle that it's completely related to this movie, right? I mean, I think about that movie now and it totally makes sense. That's a movie where a kid loves his mother so much that he will literally like do anything to get to her, right so I think like completely agree with you i'd en- I'd encourage everybody to like after seeing this go back and watch his other works. I also think something really interesting about this movie is Spielberg kind of sees his like filmmaking skills as like a superpower and a curse like there's like five separate times in this movie where someone looks at him and they're like, how did you do that? Or like, how did you make me look like that? And he's like, I don't know. It's just like, I can't explain it to you. I couldn't help but make you look like, you know, a Greek God or I couldn't help but like get this great angle. Like it's just my instinct. Uh, And I just find that idea so interesting because not, not to spoil anything huge in the movie, but, there's a critical scene that involves him like getting secret footage of something. And uh, the fact that he caught it on camera and the person basically says, why do you have this? How do you have this? I think he feels that it's, you know, in many ways, like his filmmaking has caused a lot of trauma in his own family. Right. Um, So to see that kind of look inward at himself and his, his kind of powers is uh, I just thought that was such an interesting wrinkle required him to be so honest about himself so I'll throw that out there I just think this is a really really emotionally complex movie not always in painful ways but certainly sometimes it's it's painful so
2: yeah great analysis completely agree with you thanks I can guide us into the next movie if we're done talking about the fablemans which I would w- definitely watch before before we go on to tar I just want to say uh to the audience out there I would definitely watch the fableman's after a couple other Spielberg films because I think it's good to see this is definitely a movie that's important to know like when he made it in his life and I think that it's like all the more beautiful and powerful that he made it at the end of his life kind of um after this illustrious career and finally is unpacking issues that have been essentially left to lie straight up for like 60 years or something things that he's hinted out Throughout his entire career, he finally just tackles them straight on. And emotionally, this is this is kind of a profound story. Um, and of course, the filmmaking, the score, all that stuff is there to back it up. So anyway, that's all I want to say about that. Pete, you want to lead us into TAR?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this next film is 2022's TAR. Uh, it is directed by Todd Field. And the plot reads, the film set in the international world of classical music centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered one of the greatest living composer slash conductors and first ever female chief conductor of a major German orchestra. Uh, it stars Kate Blanchett, Nina Haas, Noemi Merlin, as well as Mark Strong, who has an appearance, and Julian Glover. Cool Julian Glover cameo in this one. And yeah, it, I believe... I don't believe it's available anywhere, but this is a really important movie for the pod as it is Sam Rose Favorite from this year. I believe could be, could be speaking out of turn, but I know it's up there for you. It is available on Peacock. We have just found out. Uh, so it, definitely give this a watch on Peacock. If it's there, if you're a fan of slow filmmaking, this is your film. Uh, John, do you have some thoughts? Yeah. I just want to preface because I do want to wait to hear what Sam
2: says before I go, but I know Sam has previously covered this on Stanced Up. so And I listened to that episode, Sam. So don't pull a fast one on me and pull out some of the same analysis you did on that. I want to hear brand new takes.
1: <laughs> That's brand fair. new takes.
2: So yeah, go for it. Yeah,
1: it's totally fair. Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, first of all, I think if if you want all of my tar takes, go listen to that episode, quick plug. Um, but maybe the first one that that is a... I'm sure it's tangential to a take I gave on that podcast. But to me, this is the movie of 2022. Like, I'm still playing around with is it my favorite movie? I think Crimes of the Future is certainly a movie that means a lot to me personally. watched at the perfect time in my life and love that filmmaker. I think Nope is Jordan Peele's best movie, in my opinion, and just like blew me away when I saw it. But boy, in terms of like movies that represent place and time, uh, Tar's the one. And and the more like I saw it the first time and I was like, okay, yeah, like masterpiece, amazing movie. Um, But, you know, we get a few masterpieces every year, right? Uh, And then I watched it again, right? And it just like opened up even more, right? Like completely kind of changed my views on it in some ways, in some ways reaffirmed them and just developed a really rich, you know, relationship with this movie. Um, And then I watched it again. And I'm like, okay, this is like one of the ones like this is one of the movies. I'll name drop a couple I think this is like a there will be blood type of movie like generation defining type of place and time movies, right. Kind of like succession is I think the show that is the most right now I think tar is the movie that's the most right now. So, And I might have said that on that podcast, but I I feel like it's worth repeating. But beyond it, like being representative of the moment, I think this is just like a sledgehammer piece of art, right? And it starts with Blanchette, personally. I think she's like far and away the best performance, either gender, whatever category you want to put her in. I think she's like absolutely incredible. A performance that is just unforgettable. I think, you know, it, it's it's that kind of thing for me, right? It just feels so important. And uh, I've rewatched this movie, you know, three times, I think at this point, I was rewatching Bits and Pieces before we started recording today. And it is like, it's a slow burn, like like we mentioned, but it is, it's like, to me at this point, as soon as I started, I kind of just fall into its rhythms, right? And I think everything starts with Kate Blanchett though. I think she's like, Again, absolutely sledgehammer performance, like all time, definitely the best performance of the year last year in any category. Um, no disrespect to Michelle Yeoh. Good performance. I'm happy that she won. But I think we will look back on on that Blanchette snub and as kind of egregious, um, honestly. But I think it starts with her, like I said. And, and um, it would be impressive enough if she had just learned to speak German and had just learned... To uh, you know how to conduct a major orchestra, and was able to kind of effortlessly stand in front of the podium, and you believe that she's an actual conductor, but you literally feel like she's a real person. Like that's the level of committed performance. Like doing all those skills, learning different languages, that stuff is awesome and like really impressive. But the performance has to move you too, and and she creates a real character here, obviously with the help of field and the great writing. But I think you know it's like once in a lifetime type of stuff um and I'm kind of sad that she didn't get recognized for it as much as as much as I wish she could have, but yeah, I think an incredible movie field i I hope we get more movies from him after this. I think it's kind of like a a novel, completely thrilling, sneaky, really, really funny movie, probably the best ending of the year, in my opinion, yeah, just really like really, really uh, dark and, uh, kind of tough to take, but like the most true things are in my opinion. So I'll pass it to somebody else before I run for an hour.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Yeah. Like yourself, Sam, this is one of my favorites of the year. Blanchette. I mean, it's, I, I don't think I've ever seen a fictionalized biopic, but if that was a thing, this would, this would be the trademarked fictionalized biopic. Uh, I could totally see someone watching this and then right after looking up Lydia Tar, to be disappointed that she isn't a real person because that's that's the level that Blanchett operates at in this film. Uh, I love the performance from Nina Haas as well, countering Lydia Tar's gravitas of a of a person, I guess. And yeah, just I don't know. I've interacted with, I've met a few you know composers just at like panels and stuff, and this is how they like. They are like this. They are very cold and just insanely dedicated to their work, and that's what I think brought Blanchett out in this. It just seems so believable. It has my favorite shot from the year in the Juilliard scene. Uh, I love that whole conversation, and I think it had to be said uh, as well as you know Lydia Tarr operates in this this industry that is so ruled by classicism and venerating these old people. But you know, there's a reason why we do that, right? Because it sounds good. And it's beautiful music. Uh, so the separation of artist and work is really important. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's a cool reflection of how people are treating art now, especially in these high art forms, per se, of, you know, opera, classical music, stuff like that, where they're looking for things to get at these composers at. But at the end of the day, if beautiful music's beautiful music, it's beautiful music. So that's what I took away from this. A lot of really great takeaways. Such a patient film as well. It said said things without even having to say it. One of the best scenes was with her assistant, played by Noomi Merlant, who is in Porch Level Lady on Fire. Plug, great French film. One of the best I've seen in the past few years. But she she's great in this as well. And yeah, I just really enjoyed my time. Really long runtime, But if you're a fan of patient, curated filmmaking, you'll appreciate it. I also love the intro to this movie at the panel just listing off her accolades it really established her as character great exposition i think so yeah that's really all i have to say about tar loved it loved the score as well uh done by Hildur. i always mess up her last name so i'm not gonna say it uh but i think it added a lot of depth and uh sort of obscurity and darkness to the movie that isn't there at face value so yeah
2: yeah i mean start to finish it's it's excellent now hopefully the score will be good for a movie about a composer and conductor. (laughs) Um, But that opening interview sets the tone really well. And from beginning to end, every shot is precise and masterful. And it kind of mirrors the personality of the main figure in the film, which is Blanchett's Lydia Tarr. It rings true that it mirrors so many people in real life. And this film is definitely kind of an expose on cancel culture and art, not the artist. And I think that that's the most powerful theme I took away from it was despite all this, like, all the turmoil that her character goes through. And yeah, I think it's clear that Lydia Tarr is not a great person, but she is a master at her craft. Over and over again, the moments of music are where her character finds the center. And ultimately, even though, you know, a lot of things in life, kind of tank for her, and and she spirals throughout the film, when she learns and, and goes back and looks back on her memories and thinks back to the music and starts playing music again, focusing back on music, that's when her character's at at its best and and her happiest. Um, And so I think it's actually kind of beautiful the way that the film wraps up her kind of coming back to music, even if it's in a completely different, less glamorous form. I've had the opportunity through like the Glee Club that I'm in to work with a number of conductors and sing with a couple of symphonies. Like two weeks ago, I was singing with the Arizona Music Fest, which is like a symphony orchestra comprised of musicians from all the major symphony orchestras in in North America. And I do think that this captures that culture in a way that I haven't seen other films do it. Um, it, it is very intense, but that's for a reason. It's because in a way, it's music at its purest form, uh, specifically Mahler. I love the tribute to Mahler. And how she's getting through his I think it's the ten symphonies i I forget which one I sang, but I think I sang his third with the Annapolis Symphony Orchestra, and there's a conversation that still sticks with me in this film where they she's talking with a student about kind of the terrible things that some of these famous artists have done, and you know a lot of them are white men and all this stuff, but ultimately the music that was made captures human history. And, and it's beautiful. And there's a reason they're still playing music that was composed in like the 1600s, the 1800s. Johann Sebastian Bach might not have been the great, per- the great person that we associate with the music in real life. But the idea that's in that music is what's beautiful. And I think that her character is a reflection of that in the modern era. And so yes, it's absolutely a movie of our time. And it captures a piece of the culture that's present, but not really on most people's minds.
1: Yeah, I think as long as long as we're willing to go longer on this movie, because I I could go for a while on this one. I, I I think you guys are making really good points. To me, this movie offers way more questions than answers, right? Like you know, I'm I'm really happy to hear about how you kind of feel about the endings of this movie and, and what you think Field kind of meant you to take from it. I, I I still am not, you know, quite sure, right? And there's a key line Um, You know, during that Juilliard uh, lecture scene, which for me is the movie scene of the year where she says someone like Bach understands that it's the question that's the most interesting, not the answer. Right. That's this movie in a nutshell. Right. Like that whole Juilliard scene when she's questioning the student about his values or their values and, and and what they think about, you know, these these great cisgender white historical figures she's really asking you, right? She's asking the audience member, what do you think about this, right? Like, what's okay? What, is, is it okay for these people to exalt you? Is it okay for their music to move you? And, you know, by saying no to these people, does it shut you off from interesting possibilities, right? Or should we not accept this? Like, should we not accept their behavior, right? And and what? But what does that mean? What does that response mean, right? I think the questions are the most interesting part. I don't necessarily know that, the field feels one, one way or another, but I think he's really captured, he's captured that, that question, which is always kind of floating around in our society right now. You know, the ending of the movie, I, that's, that's one reading of it, John, that, that she's, she's back to music. She's, you know, finding her love for music. I certainly think that's true to a certain extent, but I, I, I just question, right? Like, is it actually okay that she's being allowed to conduct again is, is, is this the result that we would actually want this person to have after she has transgressed, right, in certain ways? And I, again, I think it's the question, right? I, I don't, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't have a particular stance on it, but I think it's a an attribute to the film that it it's making us kind of ask these questions of ourselves and. I love movies like that 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 actually require something of you, right that, that are re- requiring you to engage with the text um, and kind of kind of push you to ask yourself difficult questions. And um, uh, yeah, so I, th- I think that Juilliard scene is absolutely the scene of the year. It's kind of a micro movie in its own in its own way. And uh, I think she says, you know, it, it, conducting is about interpretation to a certain extent in translation. So the way that scene kind of gets twisted and translated and warped and reused, I think that's a great kind of reflective moment in the movie. And it it has w- another one of my favorite shots of the year, which is later in the movie when um, she is at some place that I won't reveal for spoiler reasons. And she's holding her hand up like she's a conductor choosing something, but she is not conducting and this is not an orchestra, right? And and that sounds really vague and kind of silly, but boy, like you'll know what I mean when you watch the movie. And it's just again like a kind of a devastating piece of filmmaking. I thought the the last half hour of this movie was really, really, really dark, really, really sad. But I thought the final shot was the funniest thing that I saw in a movie theater last year. So to pull off that kind of trick is is amazing to me. Um, and it's kind of the reason I go to the movies. I want to see something that I haven't seen before, and uh, and this did it. This really takes a big swing at the end. So I think that's all I got. Is that enough tar? Do we want to go more on tar? Because I always can. We can do just a little bit
2: more tar. I think. I don't. I don't think that's a problem. A little bit more tar. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I mean,
1: I, I, that's enough takes for me, but I, I want to hear what you guys have to say
0: yeah no it, I like sort of how at times this pivots to a psychological horror film as well it's it's genreless in that way I think I think there's some things you can learn about family, about an artist, about relationships. there's just so much to unpack. It is such a deep movie. there's so much that doesn't even need to be said that it's communicated and that's why I love Tar. I think it's just technically a phenomenal movie. I think this is one of the best scripts I've seen. In a movie in some time too you know even that monologue at juilliard is so well curated and crafted by field and there's even some foreshadowing in there for the rest of the film so just such such skill was put into this and yeah that's really that's sums it up for me yeah
2: yeah sam i loved uh, that whole question kind of monologue you gave about how the the movie's about questions definitely my my opinion on what the last take means is my opinion and that alone. I mean, I think that you're right. The movie is definitely meant to be just this giant interpretive piece and it's that's you know, that speaks to its power. It's about a lot of things. It is about power, the loss of power, the loss of control. We watched Lydia's world kind of crumble and I don't think that's really a spoiler to say that slowly mirrored with how she's taking it all in in her head and I think it captures that that duality between how she's dealing with all of her problems and how the world's dealing with all of her problems. And together we get this amazing portrait that is at times psychedelic horror. At other times it's very simple. There's a linear storyline, right? But it bounces around and yeah, the writing is just phenomenal. Todd field, I think has a lot of really cool things ahead of him. This was a slam dunk grand slam five-star movie. It's very hard to compare it to other movies of the year. And I think it was definitely like disturbing in a lot of ways, but also that's, that's the point. You're dealing with an uncomfortable protagonist that Blanchett just so masterfully plays. And throughout, I was bouncing around on how I should feel about Lydia Tarr and whether or not I should root for her in some sense in certain scenes or also just kind of enjoy the downfall. But by making it about her and from her point of view... You have to go along with the ride. And I think that that's the beauty of the film. It requires a lot from the audience, which, you know, most films don't do.
1: Yeah. And I, I, again, I, I think it's it requires a lot without, without being boring, right? At least to me, I think it's, it's mm-hmm. so engaging. And I say this all just to echo what you're saying about the script. I think um, the way information is conveyed is kind of masterful. Right? There's that old, rule, that old rule to to show and not tell in movies. And I think Field is a master at that. And I think it's also like we're, we keep talking about the most serious parts of this movie, but I'm serious. I thought it was hilarious. I thought a lot of the dialogue is really funny to, to hear Blanchett say, oh, well, I'm suspicious about the E minor and the cello line. Like that is funny. That is a funny, objectively funny thing to say. And like some some of the lines in that very very serious Juilliard scene are really funny in my opinion. Like she speaks with such pretension, such gravitas. So in a way, to see someone who has clearly manufactured her life and fabricated her image, basically, to see her kind of get torn down, in some ways, it's satisfying. But then there are whole other laundry lists of questions that get that that come out of that too okay well why am i happy to see this person fail right should i actually be or does she deserve this does she not deserve this right i mean i i certainly think she does to a certain extent she definitely transgresses transgresses pretty uh pretty severely in the movie but i i, I think it's just the 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 whole orchestra speak is so funny and uh her whole image is so funny and i think that's that's just field being a really good writer and and very subtle writer. And I'll just, I, I just haven't had a chance to shout out uh, Nina Haas or Noemi Merlant. I mean, if I was an Oscar voter, I would have voted for both of them. I think Nina Haas is incredible. Her, her eyes are just like the most powerful eyes in movies, like just like dart, And you know exactly, you know, what you're supposed to feel when you see her eyes kind of flick across the room at Lydia. And then Noemi Merlant who who to a certain extent kind of plays like a beaten dog in this movie. Like it's not a very forgiving, forgiving role. And she's kind of asked to bury a lot of the emotion of the movie and, and be somewhat of a, of an, an audience role. But I think she's just great. I mean, again, she's got great eyes for performance as well. Like you just really feel moments where she's trying to hold it all together in front of Lydia Tarr. And you can tell in her eyes, she's trying to like keep from crying. Right. Um, So I just want to shout those two out. I mean, just two incredible performers and, you know, internationally renowned, but getting to do it in a, in a big American movie is uh, pretty, pretty cool. So I think I've exhausted my tar takes. Sorry for going
0: so long on this one. (laughs) Same.
2: But also, yeah, I I agree with you. It's fun to kind of watch her downfall. She's not a great person.
0: Yeah. So uh, that was 2022's tar Again, available on Peacock, so please give that a watch. And the time has come in our episode to roast a movie. And we are going to do it to one that, you know, you may have liked, but us here at Splash of Cinema, we're not a fan of this. And it is 2022's The Whale. So it's directed by Darren Arnowsky, and the plot reads a reclusive English teacher suffering from severe obesity attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter for one last chance at redemption. And it stars Brendan Fraser, Sadie Sink and Hong Chow. Uh, and it got Oscar nominations for Brendan Fraser and Hong Chow and Brendan Fraser won. I'm just going to say it straight up. This was my least favorite movie of the whole year, regardless of genre. Wow. I. Uh, I did not have a great time with this one at all. (laughs) Maybe it's because I went in with good expectations. But I mean, after watching this, I walked out of theater and thought, you know what? A freshman in high school could have made that movie. Wow. You could have looked up inspirational quotes on the Internet and littered them in this film because that is what it felt like. I just didn't. It wasn't entertaining uh, to any degree. I thought Frasier was good. I don't think he deserves the Oscar. But yeah, in the end, it was just an awful movie. Like Darren Aronofsky, you should be ashamed. This this was terrible. But I'll let you guys <laughs> this talk. This is scathing, bro. Holy cow! Damn. I don't think I've
1: ever heard Peter talk about a movie like that. <laughs>
0: wow. That, uh, yeah.
1: Well, Sam, I'll let you go up next. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I I did not like this movie. I it's it's I don't know if it's my least favorite of last year. It's it's down there, but I mean. Look, I, I don't hate it. I like. I'm not. I don't think I'm at Pete's <laughs> Pete's level of um, of quite disliking that. Um, but I, I agree with Peter. I think. Look, Brendan Fraser got nominated. Hong Chau got nominated. I have no problem with that. Honestly, I think they were probably the two best parts of the movie. I think Fraser is a person who I love. A a guy who I want nothing but success for in this world. Um, do I wish that his Oscar win came with a better movie? Absolutely. But hey, sometimes these things happen and you know what, I'm I'm going to clap for him. And Hong Chao, I think an actress who had a bit of a coming out year last year, um, just like between the menu and, and the whale. Personally, I kind of thought she was better in the menu. I think she's really awesome in that movie and a lot more fun, um, but she's certainly doing the best she can in this movie yeah I think the problem comes down to Darren Aronofsky. This is a guy who does not lack big swings in his career. He's kind of known for experimental divisive movies uh, between Mother Black Swan, you know Noah, in which if you I don't know if you remember this, but he he tried to tell the tale of Noah's Ark on film. It's kind of crazy uh, but but yeah, he's just a someone who I often go into his movies thinking to myself, I'm just excited to see something interesting, something that like starts a conversation in my head, something that requires something of me. And I went into this one feeling that like I just wanted to kind of join in on the discourse and I just didn't really find anything to grab onto. I thought this was kind of a miserable time. Um, Certainly that's the point to a certain extent. And not that all movies have to be happy. Certainly, we've covered a couple today that aren't, uh, and maybe they're better for it. But this one, just if you're going to be unhappy, if you're going to be miserable, you have to at least be interesting. And and to me, this this had a lot of like starts of interesting ideas. Like there were a few interesting ideas about parenthood, about you know what what depression does to do our bodies, how our bodies react to grief how grief affects you know our family relationships and somehow you know parenting is kind of swirling around that whole thing. but I never think Aronofsky like takes any of these ideas anywhere. He certainly doesn't take them very seriously. The movie kind of feels like a parody of itself to me and um, it's unfortunate because I I do think there like was potentially a really interesting provocative movie here and instead I just kind of thought, it was a little bit boring. And and beyond that, so you have Brendan Fraser playing this severely obese man a type of character that we don't get to see in movies very much. And in some ways, I think he gives him a great deal of agency. And then he throws in a montage where he's just like comedically picking out on pizza after pizza and digging through drawers of candy bars. And it's just like, okay, I really don't feel like you're taking this movie seriously, in which case I'm not going to take it seriously. Right. Like it just feels a little bit condescending. I wished, you know, if if we're going to have some more fat representation or, or overweight representation on, on film that, you know, maybe we handle it with a little bit more grace. So that, that, that's, that's, I guess maybe I'm being a little too, woke right now but um (laughs) i just i don't know it it was very weird because he takes the movie so seriously and then he kind of throws in this like cartoon montage of him like pigging out it's just kind of i don't know it's just it it feels at odds with itself um but i'm curious to to hear what john thinks
2: yeah i'm definitely the guy in the room that hates this movie the least i gave it three stars and i'm gonna defend it for a second before i unleash all my criticisms I really only gave it three stars because of Fraser. I thought he was great. And I'm gonna give a little bit of a lifeline to Aronofsky just because if you're familiar with um his previous work, which you know you both are, it's it yeah, it's insanely weird and experimental and this is no different. The ice is very thin with my relationship with Aronofsky at this point. He's lost all of the, the ground that that I would give him. And that is completely due to the fat, like the eating montages, which were just totally unnecessary. And a lot of like him showing how slow Brendan Fraser's character is to get up and all this stuff, like about half the movie is like, yeah, we get it. This guy is overweight and there's a lot of problems associated with that. And what's sad is the emotional stuff. The, the interesting stuff is like half explored. None of the characters are like developed in any meaningful way. Aside from Fraser, who, as we just said, is not is kind of given agency, but also kind of not. I didn't like any of the supporting performances, even though, like, the Bible boy, who I thought was probably the best supporting performance, I was just like, what? After a while, like, they started to develop an interesting story for him, and then, like, completely, like, shit on it. And, yeah, especially Sadie Sink, she just completely rubbed me the wrong way the whole time. There was, like, each character had an on off switch but it was either fully on or fully off and you got to have a little bit of complexity there even brendan fraser who i loved like after a little while of him like breaking down and crying just over and over i was like does he have any other emotion than like this milk toast i'm depressed vibe and the exploration of his past was what was interesting i thought the the ending kind of saved it a little bit i like the the metaphysical themes but there was way too little of that and way too much of the here's him eating. Like seriously, that was so overdone and it it was trying to give representation of something that it completely disserviced. And that was a lot of the critique for the film was this is this is doing kind of the opposite of what it's supposed to do. This character you're supposed to root for, it's it's almost disgusting in a way like frequently throughout the film how much they emphasize the problems he's dealing with with his weight. And it really lessens the emotions of his character i think a lot but i like the whole english teacher arc i thought there was some interesting stuff there yeah i don't i don't know it it was it was pretty sad because i did come into it with high expectations and brendan fraser was supposed to give this revolutionary performance and obviously he's suffered a lot in in his career and this is a great redemption for him but it was man i wish it was a better movie like like just like you guys said and if, if he didn't have this whole great like career arc where he's completely like coming back in a way in this beautiful way, I don't think he would have won the Oscar. If it was anyone else giving that exact same performance, it would have just gotten a nomination and nothing else. But yeah, I don't think he, this should have won over Austin Butler for best actor. And it shouldn't have gotten nominated for anything else but best actor. And A24 too, like, you know, this was an A twenty four movie, so of course it's going to be a little weird. But it it didn't hit the same veins that the best A twenty four movies do, where it's weird, but there's a point to it. This felt like it was just Aronofsky like spit spit firing like a shotgun approach at us. And yeah, I, I don't think there was a a great message, and there were way too many themes, concepts, characters that were half explored
1: and nothing else. So, I was just gonna like echo what John said. Mm-hmm. I, I just think the it's a really, really weird Oscar win to me. And I kind of feel like nobody else is feeling this way but me, but it's like he kind of won for a, a movie like that was rooting against him, right? Like the, a movie that was not very kind to him in any way and has, has all these one note, like you said, John, like one note supporting characters. Okay, what's Sadie Sink's character? Oh, she's mean until she isn't, right? And, okay, what's Hong Chao's character? Oh, she's supportive, right? And, you know, like, okay, there's his ex-wife. Like, they're all just just one note characters. And um, I'm happy that he won. Again, I'd like to reiterate that. I'm happy for him. I want all the success in the world for Brendan Fraser. Uh, but it's just kind of like, get kind of a weird feeling in my stomach. Like, I just don't think the movie really likes his character. So it's kind of interesting that he won for this, right? <laughs> like people are going to look up the Oscar winners. They're going to be like, what's the whale? And They're going to be like, oh my God, like this movie kind of hates this guy. So um, <laughs> just thought I'd throw that out there. I'll let you get to your point, Pete.
0: Yeah, no, I, that's, that's exactly what I was supposed to say. going to say like how it's hard to sympathize when a c with a character when, I mean, there's only one character who is sympathizing with him uh, in Hong Chow throughout the whole movie. I just feel like Arnofsky didn't write this character with enough care. And that's, that's like one of the, I don't know. I'm just pissed at Darren Aronofsky for this. I thought it was just a very lazily made film. The whole character of Hong Chao and her relationship to Fraser, you know, they briefly touched upon it. Like, give me more of that. Give me more of that backstory. I wish they delved into that as opposed to just focusing on Sadie Sink debating whether she was going to leave the house or not. Because that was like 15 minutes of the movie. It was, yeah, it's. It just kept repeating things. The eating was disgusting. I don't think we needed to see that to understand his character. It was overdone. And I don't know. I think like the whole thing, like the whole one-liners, I don't even remember them because they weren't memorable to me because I checked out of this movie about 20 minutes in. But I don't know. I just think something like this would be better on the stage because it is so isolative in its setting. And I think you can sympathize with the character more. Uh, but the way Aronofsky did it, it was hard for me to sympathize with Fraser's character. And uh, what else was this movie trying to do, if not that? So, yeah, that's where I stand. It is a play,
2: like, and it felt like a play that was a movie. It it definitely is a play in the way that all the characters kind of come together in like this. Like, it's it's one setting the whole movie. But what was not special about it was that all these characters kind of come together out of nowhere after this like long life uh that he's lived this struggle with obesity and it doesn't really explain why they're there and it doesn't give the right emotional complexity like the fact that this daughter that hasn't seen her father in years just like they kind of in a way pick up just like where they left off and it does explore the resentment but way too much and so the emotions don't feel genuine the whole like religion church of life thing is super weird between like the boy that shows up to the door and Hong Chao's character. And, you know, religion is definitely an interesting concept to explore if you do it right. But this just like half-assed it and you don't understand why these characters are the way they are in almost any way. Like the backstories are completely like unexplored and half-baked. The emotions are just so overplayed. So it was a struggle. I mean, My least favorite movie of the year was Love in the Villa. So, like, I'm clearly seeing a lot of movies that make me appreciate this a little bit more. Like, this at least had, like, one or two moments of genuine writing. But even how the film starts, like, it starts with him, like, masturbating to the point of having a heart attack. Like, why? Just why was that scene even in there? And if you do give that scene then you don't have to show all the eating montages. Like, they maybe needed to show, like, one of those things. Like, one little scene of him eating too much pizza. And you get the point. Like, he's disgusting. He even says at the end, like, he confronts one of the characters and is like, no, 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 like, am I disgusting? Like, tell me I'm disgusting. And I'm like, what is this? Like, is he... (laughs) Like, what what are we playing at here? But,
1: yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think that opening heart attack scene is like... I just want to be clear. Like, it's not... (laughs) it really rubs me the wrong way not because of like what he's doing or like all the implications of what he's doing uh it's just because it makes it his makes his character feel like he's reduced to a caricature like it just it just Mm -hmm. feels like he's not taken seriously i mean like the act itself is not disgusting but like in the context of a you know very serious awards contender movie i just find it really really condescending like in how can we show that this guy is gay and overweight well like that's just the silliest thing i've ever seen i'm sorry like from from like that first minute i was completely out
2: yeah and like he's he's gay but also like there's not much more on that that's definitely an interesting character component and like the like is he religious is he not religious like Is he secretly religious? He has a weird Bible in this back room he never goes in. The relationship with his, like, ex-wife, he hasn't seen her in, like, four years, and he just shows up, and he's like, oh, how are you doing? Like, what? (laughs) Yeah. There's no, like, it's not believable. It is, like, a caricature. Uh, I might have to rewatch this and bump it down, because this conversation is, like, bombing out (laughs) the positives I took away from it. (laughs) And I guess my like the poll positive thing was it's weird and I don't really understand it. So I might as well like give it an okay rating because some people love this film. Like there is a crowd out there that totally
1: like sees it and gets it. I was talking to my mom about this movie and she's like, I thought it was an amazing movie about parenthood, which like I don't have kids. Maybe I'll, you know, for some reason decide to turn this on later in life and it'll unlock something for me. But at this point in my life, I, I, I just don't see it. it cause, cause I do, I see the folks on Letterbox that are like in love with this movie. And I mean, it's not like it has a 2.0 average on Letterboxd. It's got like a 3.7. It just, I don't know. Exactly. I, it really rubbed me a wrong way.
2: Did yeah. you tell your mom, to uh, go see After Son? Cause
0: that's yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, yeah. that yeah. is right. a
1: great movie about parenthood.
2: You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Without spoon feeding different. it to you. Like this felt like spoon fed. I was like, does he think that we're idiots? Like, what? a I don't know. It's a mess.
0: Yeah. I also just want to shout out the analogy of Moby Dick. I thought it was just, I don't know, like I could anyone could have thought of that, right? Like this big guy, you're you're analogizing him to a whale to a story about a whale. And that's his solace. Uh, I thought that was super such a lazy analogy just to add on to all the shoddiness of the film. So, yeah. I'll end it there. <laughs> yeah, so that was 2022's The Whale. I doubt anyone has
2: any other criticisms. Does anyone have before I wrap up the episode? No.
1: No. I don't want to talk about this movie anymore. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> me neither, because it's
2: kind of bumming me out. I mean, it's funny, but it's bumming me out. Um, yeah, so I just want to say thanks for coming on, Sam. We we really appreciate it. Yeah, we've been doing this for like three
0: years now, which is wild yeah. with yeah. you. Crazy. Uh, Sam, just before, uh, just before we let you go here, like, what do you, uh, what's your prediction for Succession season four? Cause listeners, if you do not know, Sam Rosevere is a massive Succession fan as well. Uh, so oh. after, after the first episode, like, what are your, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's coming out in five minutes, so.
1: <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. We got to hurry up and finish this up. So it won't take too long, but I, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, just to give my quick review of the first episode, I mean, like, number one, every time there's a new season of Succession, I ask myself, okay, are they going to start five minutes after the last season ended or are they going to start two years after the last season <laughs> ended? Yeah. And I just, you know, it, it's one of the great things about the show is you never know, you know, kind of when the next episode's going to start up in the timeline. And um, I just thought, you know, the whole premise of the first episode was Amazing. And, and like, if there were any kind of jitters about this being the last season, just immediately out the window, they're clicking as well as they ever have been. It's as funny as it's ever been. It's as sad as it's ever been. Um, I just I thought it was an awesome episode. Really hilarious. Shout out to the Disgusting Brothers just the like funniest thing disgusting
2: ever. brothers <laughs>
1: disgusting brothers <laughs> shout out to greg's plus one with her ludicrously <laughs> capacious bag in which she probably <laughs> keeps flat shoes for the subway or like a garbage pail And <laughs> that's just the funniest like monologue about a bag like you could slide that across the floor at a bank robbery like that is so <laughs> funny and it's the type of thing that like only rich people think about but whatever anyway my prediction for this season um like how it's gonna end pete like god i don't know i i think we should i think i'll start with this good shows tell you how to watch them right every season so far has started out for me i always go back to kendall right i don't really know who the main character of the show is which is one of the great things about it but for me kendall is the show and Every show, every season starts out with Kendall having a plan and combusting. Mm -hmm. Why am I led to believe that this season will be any different? I think they're going to, the kids are going to do their thing. It's going to be awesome for a little bit. I love the angle of them battling their dad on somewhat of an equal playing ground. I really, really love that we're going to get more election stuff with Jared Mencken's character. Like that's awesome. He was one of the highlights for me in last season. But I think there's one top dog in the show and that's Logan. I think there's a world in which he dies in this season. I don't necessarily know if I see this because Succession's never killed anybody off. It's not that type of show. So I just think, I don't know. I think we're in for more heartbreak for these kids because we have to remember they're all terrible people. Like none of, none of, <laughs> them, des- none of them deserve anything good in my opinion. Yeah, right. So, yeah. so, so why should they start now? I don't really have a prediction. That's as, that's as much as you'll get from me. Yeah.
0: yeah, Well, great. Yeah, we're we're excited for season season four. So, yeah.
1: Episode two coming out in two minutes. Yeah. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah anyway, thank you, boys.
1: Yeah, thank you, too, for having me back on. I'd love to, yeah. love to chat. Anytime. With we got to have you on uh, Up sometime as well.
2: It would be an honor. So, all right. Well, thank you guys for listening to Splash of Cinema, episode 28. Signing off, I am John. I'm Pete. And I'm Sam. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Nice.
1: 80 degrees. Oh, shit.
0: That's sick. Hell yeah.